Welcome to Happy Path Programming. I'm Bruce Eckle. I'm James Ward. Welcome, everyone. Today we have with us Roman Elizarov. Did I say that right? Close. That's fine. Close yeah, enough. that's close enough. Yeah. <laughs> Who is the language designer on Kotlin? And so, uh, super great to have you. Um, we've Bruce and I have been doing a lot with Kotlin. You wrote the Atomic Kotlin book, and and uh, yeah, now in my job, I get to do a lot more Kotlin. And so, um, great to have you on to, to chat mm-hmm. about Kotlin. Thanks for joining us. Mm-hmm. You, you um, weren't initially the the lead language designer. Somebody else was doing it, right? No, Andrew Brislav was initially doing, but I was involved actually from a bit uh, from right. the very first days when Lynch was born in 2010. I was I didn't work doing a chat race back then, but I was invited as an external reviewer for the initial language design, so I had a chance to participate at the birth of the language, and then then kind of then did my own things for for for, for and- several years. And you did a lot with coroutines. Did you, did you create coroutines or what, what was your relationship there? Uh, when I uh, joined Kotlin team uh, shortly after Kotlin 1.0, uh, uh, there was already uh, a prototype for coroutines implementation that was planned for Kotlin 1.1. When I joined, I started participating in language design and uh, uh, still led, uh, which was led by Andrew Besloff back then. And yeah, we were discussing, one day we were discussing some important cases of coroutines design. And I volunteered to take a closer look at coroutines to participate in that. And uh, I mean, it's it, mostly because of my prior experience working with server-side uh, code and having solved like in practice various scalability problems that actually would have, it would have helped me a lot if I had coroutines back then uh, when yeah. I was, what was programming. Uh, so Were you mostly so, like Java server side before. Yeah, like, I was mostly Java server side developer and core library slash core libraries. So I did a uh, big financial systems in Java, both from architecture, design, implementation, as well as maintaining various libraries uh, at the core of those systems. Uh, so, but you didn't go actors in in that that world because a lot of those financial systems, I think, went actors. We we didn't we did we did lots of homegrown things that that are conceptually close uh, uh, to the way actors work, uh, uh, and and so well, and and again, we we never been big on frameworks historically because again, uh, usually in actor systems you have to rely like on a big framework and trust it, and and when we started with big frameworks with EGB, you know, back in two thousands, yeah, <laughs> it was all, all the all the rage, uh, yep. but then uh, we kind of became framework low we gradually uh, started to rely on our own uh, small uh, focused core libraries and read less on all encompassing frameworks that, that solve everything for you. And so the same story with actors. We, we, mm-hmm. we solved problems we faced with uh, utilities we, we, we needed, uh, but never embraced any big frameworks. So, was, so, so and- as you were designing coroutines, was part of the, the kind of motivation or thinking based around, oh, if I would have had this when I was working on those financial systems, it would have made my life easier. <laughs> that's that's exactly that. Because initial prototype, it was inspired by C Sharp, and that's not a secret. It, it's still like uh, the C Sharp's uh, influence is is quoted in the design document as the main one. That was initial. It was a bit Kotlinized, uh, turned a bit in a Kotlin style by adding more uh, flexibility and other into the design. But still, it was initially heavy 
C-sharp based, uh, and uh, which was, uh, and it was hard to, to solve the, the problem that, that I would yeah. have found useful solving in my life back then. So, so I was tweaking this design uh, to make sure it's as clean as as simple as possible to to solve not just uh, you know like UI uh, style problems, or, but also server side and uh, to basically make it as encompassing as possible. That seems like hard to to design something that has such a broad uh, number of use cases that it could be used for. Because server side needs are very different from UI needs, but somehow I think coroutines have found that like sweet spot that it's great for both ends of the spectrum yeah when you think about it it's not that designing something all encompassing is hard i mean it's designs often fall into this trap of because of trying to over generalize they're trying to create this general thing that but it why this is a trap because by doing very general thing you you usually sacrifice performance and toolability ability for tools like 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 you can have like really generic solution, like take Lisp, you know, you could do anything in Lisp, but then no tool like in ID will be able to work with your code because yeah. your code has become too general. And so the, the, the problem always in design is finding this balance. You want it to be general uh, to solve the problem you have on the table, but not too general as to uh, lose performance or to uh, make tools uh, like, like, Again, take the list for you can solve every problem with macros. Like, yeah. why would you need coroutines? Let's set macros to the language, implement coroutines on the macros. Easy, easy. But then you have macros in the language and you threw all your smart tooling out of the window because yep. it won't be able to see through your macros. That's right. Yeah, yeah. We talked to Martin Odersky about exactly that a few weeks ago and, and how they've really backed away from general macros because of all the, the downsides to do that very general solution. <laughs> Mm hmm. Um, so what was your um, yeah, what, what was your philosophy when you were creating the um, the coroutine system? What I guess what what problem were you trying to solve that maybe wasn't solved or maybe I, I suppose a better question is like other than C sharp, were you taking inspiration from like go um, yeah, the, the, the other source was definitely Go. I mean, basically after C Sharp, the second, so so what, what I wanted to, so having C Sharp inspired design at the start, that's like a sync await. And in the prototype, it was like a sync await, the keywords were sync await basically, and stuff like that. The idea was that, okay, now we have C Sharp like things, but now we want a Go-like ability to write code like in Go, where you can simply compose functions when you can loop, when you can do without blowing up the language. Because if you look at uh, the way C-sharp, if you look at C-sharp without proteins and look how proteins add to it, they not just have a single weight, they have a, a weight for loops, they have a weight uh, wars. Like there, there's, there's a lot of complexities, like this weight starts to creep into all corners of the language uh, complicating all the constructs in the language because now we want to support all of the things. So what? Uh, so um, what I wanted to achieve is I wanted uh, minimal mechanics in the language, uh, minimal changes. But then you can just simply write code and use coroutines whenever you want, and that's why we ended up having uh, just suspending functions. And that's why we actually the actually the scariest design decision was 
not to have any kind of weight on the call side, uh, like, like it's in C-sharp. And we chose that we do it only in the IDE show, whereas your suspension points are. That was hard, but we made it because of Go, because by that time we designed Go was becoming popular. And we read, you know, lots of testimonies of people who programmed in Go were happy about it without having to write the weight all the time. And that's convinced us it's okay not not to have to write a weight all the time. Yeah. Yeah, like why should the developer have to tell the compiler that information? It's like, no, let the compiler figure it out. The compiler knows what's what a suspend function is. Like don't make the developer have to think yeah. about that. See, it, so some people still think it has to be in the source. Some people still think that's information that you're waiting is so critical it has to be expressed in the source. It, it, there's no like, uh, well, like look at Swift. They added coroutines recently. Still, they chose to write a weight on every call site consciously because they, they, they thought that critical piece of information has to be in the source. Now, we've looked at it different way. We've looked, uh, and it's actually reminiscent in the way we view other features in Kotlin. So the way we view it is when developer writes the code, they have to first and foremost think about the business logic. So the source, what they write in the source has to reflate the business problem they're solving. And everything else in Kotlin is that we consider to be boilerplate that we want to reduce. We don't want to see all the other stuff that's not directly related to the business problem. Person. So for us, this fact that you're suspending from time is a secondary information that's not directly relevant to the business process you're, you're coding. Yeah, this is one of the things that I've liked a lot about Kotlin is the, um, the removal of things that you don't absolutely need. And it's like, well, and have no value. Well, like, right. Like saying a wait. Mm -hmm. There's no value to like as you're reading through the code. It actually is distracting. It's confusing. Yeah, it's like why why do I have to do it's like, this? I don't care. Yeah, <laughs> I don't care that it's right that it, and that it's asynchronous. And knowing you know now that I'm beginning to understand, oh, that is just decoration that the compiler can. If the compiler can figure something out, I want it to do it for me. Yeah, and so you know, keep it. I mean, type inference is another great example. Mm -hmm. of this. It's like like. Why should I have to tell the compiler this information? Right. Like just is unnecessary most of the time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's it's it's very frustrating to me when yeah. I when I see that in other languages. Yeah. It's like and we've talked about this on many episodes. Like, yes. are we serving the compiler or is the compiler serving us? <laughs> right. Yeah, it's the whole point of a higher level language is that you don't have to do that low level bookkeeping. Yeah. Um yeah, th which is one of the things that I have that I really enjoyed about um, Kotlin was how it lifted tried and tested features from other languages rather than just saying, oh, we're brilliant. We'll invent everything from scratch and it'll be awesome. Like some languages I could mention. I mean, if you, if, if you are working at a university and have a bunch of postdoc students who want to do research, you know, that's maybe a great, way to handle language design i guess um but but it's i mean i just really respected the idea that well let's look and see what works really well in practice in these other languages and i'm amazed that i mean with all the languages that i'm seeing I've, i'm amazed that you guys were able to pull that off 
because it seems like there's a lot of, no, no, let's invent it ourselves. We're awesome attitudes. Yeah, there's, it's, it's, it's one of the conscious, again, things in cotton design, you know, because it has cotton, it's pragmatic meaning that it's for industrial use for, for critical developers. And because it, it, of that, it has to be easy to learn. And easy to learn means it has to use, uh, you know, knowledge that people already acquire for one language. And, and this kind of limits us in, uh, uh, in our creativity. Uh, but that's a good limit to have. Like we're conscious, we have to stop ourselves from inventing complicated things and have to uh, try to see what's out there, what's already people know, what people have learned to reason about, and we use that in common. Yeah, one of the things that I noticed is that you did almost no invention except in a few places, like the Lambda with receiver, which I prefer to call extension Lambda because it fits my mental model better. And like that seemed like something where you said, oh, we really need this. But, like but it's not, again, invention on completely new. It was like the syntax was, uh, was inspired by Groovy, and most of the behavior was inspired. What's, what's new is how it was... Uh, um, you know, kind of uh, tweak into the uh, static type system uh, so that it behaves in predictable way. The problem with Groovy Lambdas, they're also great for this alpha stuff, but they, they have this dynamic and complicated behavior with this. Uh, in Kotlin, it's more predictable in, uh, for static language. So it's, not, it's again, not something we just invent. It's something, again, we take and adapt uh, to the style and needs of Kotlin. Can you think of any features that were kind of like invented in Kotlin and not don't have like a prior prior art, a heavy prior art side of I'm, them? I'm not really. I mean, most of the features in and in many other languages are mashups of, uh, you know, features you would find. Even coroutines inspired by C Sharp Go, I mean, uh, by even by, like, by Lisp, the way you work with continuations. But... I mean, still, it's mashup of things that uh, has been known before uh, and has found to be useful in other circumstances. They could be combined in novel ways, like in numbers. I mean, uh, static support for those receivers is a novel thing. Syntax a bit novel, but again, uh, when we mean syntax, sometimes we have to do a novel syntax. But again, it can't be hundred percent novel. Like we can't take an a character and we invent it for some use. That uh, that never been seen because nobody will then understand uh, the language by reading it. Like 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 plus has to mean addition. Like minus has to mean subtraction. Like uh, there is only so much we can do, and only so much we can be creative. Or as because otherwise we'll just ruin the language. We'll make it impossible for other developers who are new to Kotlin to to read the code. So there is a new feature that uh, we've been kind of puzzling over the, um, what's it Context called? Context receivers. Context receivers. And we were thinking that it was kind of like- um, Type classes. Type classes, but it doesn't seem to be fitting that way. Can you give us some perspective on context receivers? It, it's actually very much type class. It's actually the, the people, the use cases for this feature, they come from a variety of places, but they, they very much also come from the, use cases that people familiar with type classes have. And uh, 
it's it's very much inspired by Scala's, uh, you know, implicit with uh, given a using in the Scala three three. Uh, uh, it's a different feature though, because again, uh, there is no way we can take like a Scala feature and adapt it to Kotlin because of very different language style. And unfortunately, there's uh, uh, this feature, there's little precedent in this kind of feature in other languages. And that's where we'll have to do some invention, uh, simply because uh, the very concept of implicit receiver is very Kotlin specific but it's very well understood by Kotlin developers because in Kotlin TSLs and Kotlin scope functions, you have this implicit receivers because of this, you know, lambda Swiss receivers so much often. And when even people who don't have prior Scala experience, who don't know what their classes are, they start running into limitations. They start running into DSLs they want to create, but can't because you can have only a single implicit receiver. So there's on one side, there's been always this request, please give us ability to have multiple implicit receivers because in there is a litany of use cases, people run into this single receiver limitation in virus context. Uh, like there's, we have this huge laundry list of cases where people run into it. And on the other side, there are people coming from Scala uh, and uh, were or from actually like, you know, dependencies injection kind of style. They want something like Tim classes or something you can call it depends where they want some contextual information to be injected in their code without having to explicitly pass it. And and and, and I know this is this is this becomes really uh, 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 scary territory because you know there's a saying that developers will uh, uh, will will do any atrocity just if uh, for not having to pass function parameters explicitly. <laughs> and of course, there's always better to pass things explicitly, always better, your code more readable. But but then it became- It gets unwieldy at some point. It was unwieldy at some point, right. Because if there is a thing like log, for example, or something, or some kind of context that is really uh, kind of all throughout your application, having to always pass it explicitly yeah. will make your code unreadable. And th that's what continuous receiver designed to solve. So you don't have to pass explicit. But again, like this is really the reason why we're carefully approaching this feature and why not going like all this colorway because this feature has really high abuse potential because by passing things. So on one side, it has potential to make code cleaner by removing repetition of having to explicit. But on the one side, you can abuse it. And instead of explicitly passing things, you can start passing them implicitly making your code unreadable. So there's a complicated yeah. balance here. And not just, so it's not only that we have to add this feature to the language, we also have to figure out how to properly use it. And so one thing we're doing right now, we're starting to use it in our own code to gain this experience. So this experience can help us into the feature design. So we can not just release the feature, but also give some guidance to people where it's okay to use, where it's they should consider not using it. Yeah. Are you mostly thinking of it as a way to get rid of dependency injection or? Not, it's not really getting rid of dependency. It's mostly, again, the reason we called it context receivers because it's mostly, again, about passing information that comes from context to functions. And uh, when you say dependency injection, you usually write your code in classes. Like you have class and you choose dependencies. But Kotlin is more functional. In Kotlin, you always write code in functions. But functions, 
are not in, they're usually top often top level they, they don't have class no member function there's no, no member there's no member place to inject dependency to and yeah. so mm -hmm. that context receiver they they help you here mm -hmm. yeah mm -hmm. that makes sense what sort of um i mean we we've talked to other people who've built functional systems on top of the jvm and it's always uh, sort of a battle because the JVM wasn't designed to support, you know, immutability and things. Uh, what, what's your vision for Kotlin going forward in the kinds of things that you might do to support functional programming better? Immutability is the next big frontier for us. That's that's we've published last year this big uh, kind of it's not design documents, just notes on our way forward on uh, review types and uh, uh, all the immutability things. And we're really using this uh, as our next big thing to do, because we believe the, uh, as uh, computers become more powerful, as we write a bigger code, immutability is the way to go. It lets us write more scalable code that's safer, that's uh, you know easier to debug, and we can afford it. Like, yes, it's slower, but I mean, we have the resources to um, and so we actually want uh, better immutability supporting Kotlin, e despite the fact that it's not natively supporting Jibber. That's not something that will stop us. Of course, we'd love to see more support, like for value types, for example, in JVM, and maybe it's the project Valhalla, maybe it's coming one day, but it, it's not something that's stopping us from doing it. We believe there are many use cases for more working with immutability already even if you are having to pay high price and performance for it there are lots of people who are willing to pay this price as long as their code so what many people get stopped first of all right i'm, I'm looking we're constantly doing language just looking at what kind of code people write in this class and what we're seeing even though uh right now lots of people prefer to use immutability even though it's even syntactically uh, clunky in some cases. Like when you have a deeply deep immutable structure, it's not convenient to modify it in Kotlin. You have to do these copy calls, etc. Despite of that, people still do immutability. So they're willing to pay the price of uh, more robust syntax. They're willing to pay the price of slow performance just because immutability gives them safer. And what we're planning to do, we're planning to reduce their costs. We're planning to give them better syntax let it be as slow as before, but even better syntax would help those people. And then if we are able, if our runtime, uh, the GVM supports, uh, gives us ability to get better performance, that's great. But if not, that's just giving them better syntax is, is already great. Yeah. Yeah, and I think one of the arguments that Bruce and I were debating recently was that I think the general position is that immutability is slower, but... I've seen that in a lot of systems, it tends in reality not to be because what happens with mutable systems is that you end up just taking like this huge like synchronized block and like wrapping a bunch of mutable stuff in a synchronized block, making it single threaded anyways. And so like you're in a lot of cases, you're not actually in reality getting the performance from mutable things. Like another example I was thinking about was um, the JVM date time formatter 
turns out it's not thread safe, which is not expressed through any anything in the API, which is a whole nother thing we could talk about. But um, but there, I think that's an example where you're like, oh, I can just reuse this one instance and call the date time formatter repeatedly and not have to recreate a date time formatter. And then all of a sudden in reality, you realize because it's not thread safe, you either have to wrap it in a synchronized block or recreate a new one every single time. So it's like, okay, mutability actually like like didn't actually give us any value on performance when it came to how it's actually used. Yeah, it's it's really yeah, it's really depends on your domain and choosing the right data structure for your task is is complicated. People spend years just studying, you know, data structure design. And take another example, even without like take uh, working with big text files. Like the naive solution is to just use big mutable structure with all the strings, but then how do you insert a string in the middle? You'll have to shape, shift all the gigabytes of that. And that's where, you know, using a persistent immutable data structure is just gives you better performance at scale at when you're editing big text documents. Yeah. And there are many examples like that where indeed, uh, you know, mutable structures fit better. But but the converse is also true. Like if you simply take a typical application that doesn't work with uh, lots of data and simply replace all its mutable uh, lists and maps with mutable ones, you'll you'll get uh, your performance will suffer again. It's not. But again, suffer. But okay. Like if your application didn't work with lots of data, why do you care about performance? Then right. maybe you should have started with immutable data in the first place just uh, to be safer on the safer side of not accidentally, uh, you know, mutating yeah, some going data structure. Is, going mutable is like a premature premature optimization. Right, and if your performance is, if, if, if your program is running faster, but it's not correct, <laughs> is that what, <laughs> that you know? Perfect? So the, I mean, the, the topic, the, the date time formatter and, and a number of other libraries in Java where you discover later that you go, oh, this particular library isn't type safe or that thread one safe. isn't thread safe. And um, so how, how does Kotlin land? I mean, is there a way to know whether all of the Kotlin libraries are or not are not type safe or is it on a case by case basis? <laughs> Sorry, thread safe, case by case basis like it is in Java. So uh, in, in, in Kotlin, it's really straightforward. If you look at the Kotlin standard library and the many other libraries, standard libraries we do are on Kotlin, they are immutable first. Like by default, everything you work with is immutable. Like take lists, maps in Kotlin. Like by default, unless you explicitly ask for it, they're all immutable. Like they're like list, you can mutate it. Map, you can mutate it. Like you can transform it, filter, do another list or map out of it, but by default, it's, it's the same with daytime that we're developing right now, the same with courtiers. Like, by default, we're placing you on the safe side, and we're... If you I can't think of a Kotlin up, standard library API that isn't thread safe that I've run into. Yeah, but, exactly. But it's, it's all because it's all immutable. And if it's immutable, it's thread safe because you can't mutate it, so yeah. you can have any data races. And in Kotlin, you always have to be explicit if you want something mutable. Like, in Kotlin, even its variables, while and var, like you write while by default, and only you want to mutate it, you ask for it, you say var. Like if you take a list, it's immutable. If you want to mutate it, you have to be explicit about it. You have to say, I want a mutable list. And mm -hmm. I'll give by default, if you ask for something mutable, 
that means it's not thread safe anymore. We don't have like like thread safe mutable data structures because again, it's usually usually that's the wrong design because usually you need something more complicated and you'd rather so we so we give you if you want so we'll nudge you to use immutable things that's a safe to share and when you want to mutate you have to be explicit but then it's your uh responsibility to make sure you don't mutate it uh from uh concurrently from different threads yeah and it seems like i mean i i guess that was really surprising for me in java was it's like oh there's this other thing about a library you're using which you have to go and investigate if you're going to be using it with threads to find out whether it's and there, there was no you know tag or anything on it that said warning this is not thread safe and so it just complicated things yeah. so it's, much but it's again unfortunate that's java legacy that that stems from i mean every and every language has this if you look at the Java 1.0, I mean, it used to be the case where the the way you build strings or the way you work with vectors, uh, like uh, the list, it was called vector, and it was synchronized. And we now know that's that's the the very wrong thing to do. And Java also corrected all that uh, by uh, introducing modern collection library later on. But it, it's kind of this legacy still lives with Java. I had a conversation yesterday with someone who was who um, was asking about their in their code they were using a var and then they were doing a, a null check and then of course like because it was a var it's like no like you, you we can't verify that the we do the smart um, casting to verify that this is still not null uh, and so they're asking about that and it made me think like I need to do like an office hours that is the var to val workshop where, where anyone that is using a var they can come to my office hours and i'm going to help you get rid of that var um just because i think you know like I, when i started writing scala i was writing everything like i wrote in java with lots of mutability and now i pretty much never write a mutable thing like a yeah you you cross this line where you become fanatical about yeah you're going no i don't want to mess with that it's just like, it make feels it feels so dirty to it write does bar. it does but that that actually brings up an interesting topic which like while we were writing the book um early on to to produce immutability there was a two-dimensional array that needed to be initialized and our Svetlana knew how or found out how to write this rather complicated piece of code in order to initialize it in an immutable way. And it was hard to track. And then at some point later, she said, no, we shouldn't do this. We should use a builder instead because, and it's much easier to understand. Now, James has a lot of trouble with builders just yep. from a philosophical. I've, I've been hurt by builders. So, and, and it's like, and then, you know, in functional programming, you see like there are points where they, where they say, okay, well, this is actually mutating but it's not visible to anybody so it's okay and hide i think the mutation hide the mutation i feel like that's what's happening inside of um builders is that um it, it, the mutation is not visible and so it's okay but um 
Yeah, I mean, so part of part of my challenge with builders, I think, really stems from the way that they're used in Java, where mm. the you you only find out that you're in an invalid state at runtime when you call that dot build method. And in Kotlin, I'm not as, I don't have as bad of a uh, experience with Kotlin builders because generally with nullability and default parameters, generally the APIs that have been built with with Kotlin builders are are giving you the information at compile time around what a valid state for mm. the construction is. Okay. Um, still, the the mutability does hurt a bit, but. Um, it's like let's just use constructors, but but I understand there's some sometimes some uh, some syntax mm. overhead to to that approach. What what's your thinking about this? <laughs> it's it's mostly depends. Uh, uh, I mean, uh, my thinking. I think it mostly depends on education. If you look at how we teach kids uh, to program uh, right now in our world, is that we teach kids to program in imperative. Mm -hmm. uh, we uh, use Scratch, we use Python, and uh, we teach them imperative programming first. And only then, after they've, uh, that's how kids, all the kids nowadays learn to program. Only then, somewhere in university, they will, might, might get introduced to functional programming and will all get, uh, you know, understanding of how to do functional transformation, etc. And, but still, they, they're, some people will get it, some don't. And for Kotlin, for example, it has to be pragmatic. It has to be uh, accessible to millions of developers in this world. Some of them, and many of them, don't have any higher education. Many of them were never exposed uh, to the course on functional programming. They might have learned, you know, Scratch and Python and then went to Kotlin. And uh, they, they have to be able to code. So we have to strike this balance where we give them and we nudge them into these functional tools, but we also give them fallback because it, for many people, it, especially if you're faced a complex task, and I've seen this multiple times, you know, I mean, and I know how to express it using group by filter map and other, but some people don't, it doesn't come naturally for them. And uh, so we have to give them tools to get their problem solved in the way it's convenient for them. So they can, I mean, if they feel it's, if it's easier for them to write in, in imperative style, then let them run imperative style. And that's why we give builders because they kind of a compromise. You know, you can use imperative style inside, but then we kind of contain this, this imperative mutability to the, so you can express it the way you like without uh, polluting all your code with mutable structures. Because at the end, the builder returns a mutable thing that you can work further in your code. Well, it makes me wonder if if Svetlana didn't. And I I don't remember who wrote this, but maybe she ended up going to you and you, because because when I saw the code, I go, okay, I can fight my way through and understand this, but I can't imagine writing it myself, going through the the steps to to come up with this, you know, as as a native way to think about it. And so, whereas the builder does, at least it's readable. <laughs> Svetlana is good at that. She's been okay. teaching people to use Kotlin right. standard library and the, uh, you know, the functional way of thinking about transformation for quite a long time. She can. Okay. She 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 knows uh, her thing well. Okay. It seems like it's a 
maybe core philosophy of Kotlin is to make sure that people can go on a journey from where they are mm. to where they they may the happy path that's that's down the road and and making that making that a journey that they can take whereas i love scala but i think that scala and especially the way that i write a lot of scala now it is not at all accessible to the java programmer that i used to be mm. yeah there's not a journey there yeah and you have to understand that i also do uh competitive programming and uh and uh that's where I mean, you don't often run into this kind of problems in uh, business practice, but in competitive programming, you do run into problems where the algorithm has to be fundamentally mutable for performance reasons. Like you see, I mean, there are lots of problems in competitive programming that either cannot, they, I mean, some of them cannot be solved with immutable at all uh, for performance reasons. And it's not like, you know, constant factor of performance, but like uh, by asymptotic performance itself. When you try to solve it in, with immutable data structures, or there are problems where you can write, uh, you know, an immutable transformation to get problem done, but it doesn't look natural at all. I mean, for many problems, way more natural uh, to model them. Natural in the sense that your code reflects your thinking. That's what I call natural. Like if you're given a problem that is explained to you in imperative terms. Like, like the problem statement says, you have a square field and you do this, this, and that things. Like, it's more natural to translate the problems, like the more directly you can translate your problem statement into code, the better. So, and that's, that's kind of balance we try to uh, strike in Kotlin. Like, because if you look at how business problem usually formulated, they usually imperative at large, like they give you steps, like do this, that, and this. But every step is usually declarative. Like if you take a business problem, that the step would be declarative. Filter out these elements, or you know, re, like you know, or do this transformation. And but by combining the imperative uh, and functional programming, it's called the programmatic way, will let you transform your business problem statement into the code as directly as possible, just like it was formulated. So you you can do big imperative step and do be declarative or functional at each step yeah yeah i guess i've experienced that where i'm i'm working on a particular problem that essentially is is, is the problem is an imperative problem or is defined imperatively and being my immutable functional programming you know who i am uh i then have to map that to to these concepts that that are not at all related to the business problem and so i'm like okay i'm going to need an applicative here and i'm going to need to do a traverse here and like that is not the that's not how the problem was defined and so i have to do this translation and yeah it's it's fun but maybe not the most ideal way to solve business problems <laughs> it, it, it might be fun if you're working working this alone but in business and you used to go for using the team so it's not just you who have to go through this mapping when you write the code. It's also the person who reviews and maintains your code, then they have to take the problem descriptions and again perform this mapping. Right. And it's mapping is, is usually not one-to-one. -one. So yeah. the other person may have a different way to map it and they will have a hard time understanding how you mapped it. So again, and for Kotlin, this is really big philosophical principle. 
in languages like that, you have to be able to transform business problems into code as directly as possible. Huh. Mm. Yeah. yeah, that's cool. Um, Okay, I have a question uh, more specific about uh, I've been t I've been sort of puzzling over what happens in the code with concurrency when I say suspend. I it generates different code, right? When I put this is okay, it, it's I'm I'm guessing it's building some kind of scope where the continuations are passed. Is that something it, like that? Yeah, it's building a state machine. Basically, it's taking your suspension points and building a state machine where where boost transition between those suspension points. And when you suspend, it, it snapshots your state to the state machine, remembers which state it's at. And then when it has to resume and then, you know, resumes from this place. And that's not something we invented just to, to make right. sure like this C-sharp compiler works in the same way JavaScript uh, runtimes work. It's like being there for ages. It's most coroutine systems work that way, right? Not, I, I can't say most. I mean, there are different implementation techniques, like Go works in different ways. Go just switches mm -hmm. stacks, or for example, uh, the upcoming support uh, for coroutines in GBM, the project Loom, uh, they use a different technique, yet another different thing, they copy stack to off storage mm -hmm. and suspension. So, I mean, there are, but, but I mean, those three approaches are probably enumerated, like state machines like we do, Go approach, and this first is probably the three major ones. Well, and it seems like any any suspension is oh, capture all of the necessary information so that later it can be restored. I mean, even when you look at the way a thread context switch happens, it says, "Well, we'll just capture everything and store it away." And and it seems to me like the difference between a thread and a coroutine is a thread says. You can you can switch anywhere, and a coroutine says you can only switch where you've told me you're going to switch, and the cost for switching anywhere is like well the benefit isn't that great, and and to reduce that for a coroutine switch to just the minimum amount that we need is a, a much better um, trade off than than just being able to switch anywhere. You, is it, am I, am I getting but, something here? You are, but the picture is actually a very blurry one. Even like computer science researchers can't agree on what exactly curtains and how to classify in modern world because uh, there are so many different approaches that that, the, that blur the lines with what curtains. For example, if you look at Go, um, what you you can clearly say that Go language has built-in support for curtains, yet you can suspend at any point and doesn't you know, have to mark them in advance. Uh, or things like that. So, I mean, there's a little blurry picture of what, what coroutines are. But what, what people would agree, though, is uh, the coroutines are necessarily lightweight threads. That's something common to all coroutines applications. But it's basically the reason why people start doing coroutines in their runtime language in the first place. Because threads are expensive. They keep a big stack and they, they cost a lot of the operating system. They're expensive to switch from one thread to another. And so, and people run uh, into scalability bottlenecks or just run out of resources with threads. And that's where they start uh, thinking, oh yeah, we have to do something else. And there's something, whenever there's something else, they call it coroutines, but again, implementation techniques and approaches differ a lot across languages and runtimes.
Oh, well, that's actually very helpful. Uh, since you brought up Loom, what's what's the what are you thinking about for the relationship of Loom and Kotlin and coroutines? Uh, Loom was actually it's when Loom releases is going to be really a complementary relationship because uh, Loom and uh, Kotlin coroutines are optimized in their implementation for different use cases, while they can support variety of use cases. But but again, what you optimize for is different. So uh, Kotlin coroutines perform best uh, for things like UI where you have lots of fine-grained, lots of lots of their small things like event handlers, you know, processing pipelines. That's where Kotlin routines excel. Where Loom excels uh, and where, what it's optimized for, it's optimized for like IO, where you process uh, chunks of data and then occasionally, occasionally suspend because not enough data because, you know, either you try to send data and, you know, socket is full or you haven't received a uh, a packet of data yet, but but your packets are big. Like you receive this big, uh, big uh, chunk of data, process and suspend it to the next big chunk of data. That's that's where Loom excels, and because of this complementary relationship, uh, we can when Loom's out, we'll, what we're planning to do, we actually plan to. Uh, so we have in Kotlin routines, we have this dispatchers I/O, which you, you have to use if you're doing any I/O things like read files, you know. And that's and where the, we like market as being a, something that needs to have a different pool, essentially, like running a different right, pool. Right, exactly. And right now, we have to use heavyweight threads in this pool because we know that you're going to physically block it. So we need, and those threads are expensive. So you do a lot of this heavy IO, the blocking IO, you're using those expensive threads. And with Loom, we'll be able to do this instead of using heavy threads, we'll be able to use uh, virtual threads, as they call them. In Loom, nice. yeah. and that will make those kinds of applications less, uh, even less resource consuming. Yeah, hmm. I was thinking about this week how so much of what we've done in programming, maybe forever, is just making it easier to efficiently manage resources. <laughs> and there's just this constant evolution of of not putting so much onus on the developer to manage resources well. Putting, moving that down a layer so that they don't have to deal with it, but then constantly making that resource management more efficient and non-blocking is part of that. Garbage collectors are part of that. Like, there's just, I don't know. It's just well, the developers evolution. are resources as well. That's, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's exactly, that, that's, that, that's good observation. I mean, uh, we're also piling abstractions uh, on abstractions. And the, the reason for that is we want to, like the most precious resource we have now is developer time. I yeah. mean, um, the hardware is becoming cheap and becoming cheaper every day. I mean, there are exceptions, of course. You can, like in Google scale, for example, when you have like, you know, one company processing like a transfer of all over the world, these, they, they have to think about physical resources because like that's a place where like optimizing a percent of CPU spend might, might get immense savings. But that's an exception. For most businesses, uh, hardware is cheap uh, and developers are expensive. And that, that's, again, that's for Kotlin, that's our main philosophy. Like, if uh, we are not trying to, we're not building a system slot. We're not trying there for every person of performance. We are optimizing for developer time. Huh. And if we can sacrifice 5% of runtime performance, but save a lot of uh, time for developer, we'll let it do it. Yeah. Well, that's kind of a, a Pythonic um, 
attitude yeah. as well, because Python is always trying to focus on developer time. I would not agree. No. Oh, you wouldn't. You, oh, I mean, okay. you what? I I try writing more than ten thousand lines of code in Python and see how much time you'll spend trying to maintain. No, it's not. Python does not scale to big code. No, you'll yeah. start wasting enormous amounts of resources. So what what works well in the small doesn't work well in the large and. Yeah, I, I mean, that's true. I mean, a lot of big systems have been built in Python, but it does, you, you have to become better and better at uh, guarding yourself. Yeah. So um, I've heard a, a story related to this about uh, TypeScript and the origin of TypeScript was that the, they started, Microsoft started building VS Code mm -hmm. and they got to, I don't remember what the number of lines of code it was of JavaScript, mm -hmm. hundreds of thousands of lines of code, and they couldn't move forward anymore. Like mm -hmm. their their progress was was just like the the code base is we can't uh -huh. evolve this code base uh -huh. because of lack of types. I think being one of the primary mm -hmm. reasons. And so then they're like, okay, well let's go create a new programming language on JavaScript that we can then have a code base that can evolve. Yeah, yeah. So what's the hardest? problem that you're struggling with in Kotlin right now? <laughs> right now, right now, lots of problems for services. Like okay. we're, like we're, I mean, we're constantly struggling with something. Like if, it, like if from the development point, we're basically, we're writing a new compiler. So we're basically changing the engine of a car while it's running full speed, you know, <laughs> that's like, but that's a really cool project. I mean, that's, that's, that's the main reason for this project is compiler performance. Like the new compiler is, uh, is like the front end is four times faster and the full pipeline will be two times faster than the old one. That, so that's, that's totally worth it. And while we're doing that, we're also cleaning lots of corners in the language design because as you know, Kotlin is not this uh, uh, specific language that's doing a spec, and it's 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 actually funny how I just today read uh, Alan Case interview in ACMQ where he 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 tells that he thinks it's a mistake to do a language based on a spec. Like you should huh. you should use a compiler as you know yeah. as a thing that specifies your language. <laughs> uh, uh, but but anyway. So the Kotlin is like that. So Kotlin is not like Java, where you have a spec and then implementation of Kotlin. The Kotlin compiler is a spec. We do have a spec for Kotlin, but the spec is there to help. It's not as a as a core reference. It's to help people understand what language does without reading the source code of compiler. Because it's like, like the compiler source code is the source of truth for what. Yeah, is the compiler is the source of truth as language reference is there to help people understand it without having to read the source code of compiler. But so, so when you, you write the compiler, uh, we're definitely running into a lot of cases where, you know, things... You find an ambiguity. <laughs> find ambiguity or we find some strange behaviors in the old compiler that, like, can be explained, you know. And uh, so we're also cleaning up the design in those cases. We're making more orthogonal, uh, cleaner, you know, easier to implement, faster to implement. And that, that's also, uh, that's where lots of uh, interesting design issues come from, just they have been discovered as we implement new compiler. And we're also trying to push language forward, gathering use cases from people and seeing what we can do. And contextual receivers, you know, uh, we're also, there's a big uh, thread uh, of trying to improve the support for statics uh, in Kotlin and extensions on static extensions on classes. That's the most voted issue in language checking right now. Huh. 
uh, adding ability to have uh, static extensions on third-party classes. So that's, huh. that's things of that variety. Yeah. Will Kotlin native ever support Windows native? What's Windows native? Well, in other words, right now Kotlin native for Windows is um, LLVM based, and no, I think I, it does today. You can build Windows executables with Kotlin native today. Can, can you? you oh, okay. You can do it, and you can oh, use. All I know. It was the. It was the, you, you have to use the. Um, the compiler you have to use. Clang or yeah, something. You, you, something like that. Okay, that that I think that's where I was thinking. Yeah, okay. it, it, it uses it uses LVL toolchain, but but not Microsoft toolchain, but it does support all the Microsoft uh, APIs, so you can build native okay. Windows apps with full like access all the Windows APIs natively and directly. Okay, so question uh, maybe to wrap up is. Um, Kotlin in the Redmonk language ratings is like number 18, which is, it's pretty amazing to, to be in the top 20. Um, I, I'm curious how you see, if you want Kotlin to be more used, I'm, I'm assuming yes. And if so, like how, what are the ways that you think that, that Kotlin will grow in, in adoption? So, so, I mean, we have uh, two short-term focuses for that and one long-term. So short-term things we focus on is uh, um, is GVM server-side, where we see lots of growth potential. There's still millions of developers who are server-side Java and not Kotlin, and that's that's uh, I, there's really natural path for them to migrate to Kotlin. And so we're constantly studying this audience, seeing what we help them with. Where well, like this compiler rewrite is actually one uh, is into is catering to this audience because many people in this group they say oh we love Kotlin but like you know to compile too slow so yeah. this compiler right will uh, significantly reduce uh, yeah big impact there may, will let more people adopt Kotlin without yeah. uh, repercussions in how they're compiled this things. is this is an area where I see a lot of a, a lot of movement happening right now. There is a Reddit thread a couple months ago that was kind of asking the question about server-side Kotlin usage. And the number of people that were responding and say, I'm in like a large enterprise, uh, I'm working in financial services, I'm you know a Spring Boot Java developer, and all these people are like, we're going all Kotlin. And that story just keeps getting, getting, becoming more predominant. That more and more of those traditionally Java server side enterprise companies, a lot of financial services are going Kotlin. I think is indicative yeah. that, that there's something big happening. We're seeing big growth uh, for this space. Uh, I mean, last year we saw 40% growth on server side. And for server side, that's a big number because it's, it, it's really like there's a big systems that don't change uh, fast. Unlike mobile, like our growth of mobile was uh, was like exponential, like it increased uh, orders of magnitude, you know, in a year. But it's definitely one repeat on server side because different nature. So, so forty percent growth a year there is, is really good one, and we, we want that to repeat and to sustain this this kind of growth on server side. Yeah. Well, but our that, friend. Um, our friend Bill went back before he became uh, all Scala Zio guy. Um, he was programming in Java, and they did a little um, hackathon week. And his was to try Kotlin, and he came away going, 
if it's just because it deals with nulls better if it just <laughs> because it these is that that's totally enough reason to switch over so many other reasons chasing down <laughs> null pointers was you know and and not having them happen was yeah that's a big solution so our for service side we're not looking to add more feature so I, we don't see any feature on the horizon that would make service developers shouldn't say oh i'll switch code because of this feature we don't see any our goal right now is to remove barriers. So we see what preventing people like performance in compilation and working on those. So like we think we have all the features to take over service side. We just need to remove the remaining barriers that we have. Mm -hmm. that, that, that's it. Uh, well, the interoperability is yes. so, so key because so many of these organizations have legacy Java and they can't just go rewrite the thing. You know, you're talking about mm -hmm. like they can't they can't just stop everything for years and go rewrite in a new language. And it's really impressive. Well, because my first attempt at interoperability was with Scala and the the hoops that you had to jump through to make that work. I think most people would just be. Um, you know, it would just be too much work. Whereas Kotlin just seamlessly drops it. I mean, really, the the amount of effort that was put into that story was amazing. Yeah. You know, because it just drops in and works. Yeah. And you don't even have to know. Just start adding Kotlin yeah. files to your source exactly. code. Exactly. And, and mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, and that's super impressive. Yeah. And and it's not it's at the price we still pay in the sense that you be often when doing designing new features or fixing bugs. I mean, we spend lots of time just thinking about Java interoperability, how to make it better. There's lots of work daily in the team uh, goes into interoperability with Java. That's really conscious effort because that's the big core audience that we cater to. We want that for them to all, for all to work really smoothly. And have that transition path. So I'm I'm curious. Yeah, one one other thing. You yes. said there's two things that you're oh, are your cool. growth yeah. growth uh, yes. angles yeah. for Kotlin. So the second one is multi-platform. So we see the uh, interest in multi-platform really growing, uh, and uh, it, it's while well, this Jivian serves the established market. It's not growing big, so we're just capturing parts of it. But the market itself not growing that fast. Uh, here we see a big growing market where lots of many people are discovering the benefits of sharing their code between uh, Android and iOS and, and their server and server. Exactly. And that's how that's where and this new market is growing. More and more people do this and we are investing heavily to participate in that, uh, to give a solution for people where they can share code, you know, works on all platforms, you know, right once your all your business logic and then uh don't you don't have to debug it twice or thrice you know just just compile for different platforms using different applications so that's our second big investment that we're doing right now together with and there is a third more strategic thing uh, is that the we're we really like to uh in the future to be able to tackle uh the javascript on the front end side well, like we strongly believe that the fact that JavaScript dominates uh, the front end is a big uh, misfortune that our industry has. Uh, so, uh, and uh, it, it's not something we'll be able to correct tomorrow uh, or in a year, but that's something we uh, think we'll be able to correct uh, in years to come. Is that through WebAssembly? 
Yes, that's that's what we bet on. We bet on WebAssembly and we work, uh, uh, invest a lot of to make sure Kotlin works great. Uh, this is like a longer term effort because sure. yeah. WebAssembly because is WebAssembly today. itself is evolving. Yes, mm -hmm. so we're working closely with uh, with uh, vendors who do WebAssembly to make sure our efforts are aligned with how they evolve WebAssembly. So then in in a few years, um, one thing that's really important for us. Uh, because right now, if you look at the web state of the art WebAssembly that's in production right now, it's uh, the WebAssembly that's in production is geared toward low-level languages, the system languages, right? Right, Rust C. It's not well suited for application languages with uh, mm -hmm. automatic memory management, etc. So for us, it's really important. Uh, one of important piece of WebAssembly uh, development is support uh, for WebAssembly. Garbage collection in, in WebAssembly, and because it both gives us ability to directly compile high-level language like Kotlin to WebAssembly, and also gives us ability to seamlessly interact with the browser, because what what we want we want people to be able to write web applications in Kotlin, and writing web applications called mean have interaction with all the DOM APIs. That right. are also automatically. You got to have the interop with JavaScript. You have the interop, and it's not just interop. You, you have to, your memory manager has to understand that mm -hmm. your Kotlin objects points to these JavaScript objects, and mm -hmm. this JavaScript has this Kotlin listener. Your, yeah. it, you have to, your memory manager has to be able to go through all these references to collect your garbage, and that means WebAssembly has to understand. Uh, uh, has to expose yeah. these interfaces. And that's something that's not in production yet, that's been in development. And we're doing our work based on the early prototypes that that's currently we work on. That's exciting. Hmm. So I'm curious, how much of your time? It seems like you spend a bit of time doing stuff like this, where you're kind of promoting and explaining Kotlin. Versus, how much time are you like heads down being an architect and you know working with developers actually, you know, oh. rewriting the Kotlin compiler, for example. So my day, if you look at my day job, what I, what I mostly do, like I have two hats. So I uh, lead the project, so I have to, to to make sure team works well. You know, people know what to do. You know, have uh, uh, plans, etc. And uh, and I also lead language designer. So my second hat is I participate in that language. Everything else, uh, pr promotion is not my primary job. I, we have a great marketing team in Kotlin and great team of uh, developer advocates that go to conferences, promote Kotlin. We have. A really experienced and professional team of compiler developers. Uh, they, these people, they really know uh, their stuff. They really know how to write compilers. Uh, you know mm. all these things, uh, and uh, so that's that's. So I'm trying to leave uh, you know this, things to professionals uh, and not intervene as little as possible into their mm. professional work. Nice. Well, that's a good note to end on. Thank you for your time. Thank you for sharing your wisdom and everything with us. We mm -hmm. appreciate it. Yes. Yeah. You're welcome. Thanks for making Thank Kotlin so awesome. Thank you very much.